Good morning, church. I want to talk with you today about how to fight a spiritual battle. How to fight a spiritual battle. From time to time, we have talked about that here. I have taught with our men and on Thursday mornings and uh, the first year I was here, five years ago, we studied how to win in a spiritual fight. But it's been a while, and so I want us to address it today. Felt very strongly this week led to do that. We are between series of studies for the, this week and next Sunday. And so, how to fight a spiritual battle. I think if this is the first time you've considered this or given some thought to it, one of the questions that ought to come to mind is, what is this business of spiritual warfare all about? Why do we talk about it at all? If you go to the very beginning of the scripture, you see, you see God revealing himself to them, telling them who he is, explaining to them how to live. And then the enemy comes and, and deceives Eve and Adam, and ultimately they sin. They, they believe the lie that the devil tells them. And so you see in the very beginning this couple whom God said had dominion over all creation. God gave them the stewardship, the responsibility for the entire earth. You see them losing that dominion. You see them losing that rule when they sinned and they forfeited that to the devil. You say, well, pastor, how, how do you know that that's true, that the devil somehow gained the rulership of the world? Well, we know this because of what Jesus said. We know it from the temptation of Jesus in places like Matthew 4, where one of the temptations that the devil did to Jesus was, if you'll fall down and worship me, you remember that? He said, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That could not have been a temptation unless it was a legitimate offer. When you come near the end of the New Testament, uh, the Apostle John, writing 1 John, says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God. That means we're born of God. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway or the influence of the evil one. And so even though the cross had occurred and Jesus had been raised from the dead, the Bible still speaks of this world as being under the influence of the devil. And so this is a real conflict that you and I are engaged in. This is a real battle, a real war. And so much of the time, you and I are too easily caught up with or confine our awareness to the world that we see, the world that we can take in through our senses, the world that we interact with physically, and we limit our sense of what is real to reality that goes beyond the visible. And reality, if you're going to understand what is truly real, all that's real, you have to include both the seen and the unseen. And the Bible assumes that. Now, you and I who read the Scripture, we read about the unseen in the Bible. We read about the presence of God, who is a spirit who is invisible. We read about uh, demons. We read about exorcisms. We read about things that happen in this unseen realm in the Bible. And we say, well, yes, I believe that. I believe it's true. But did you believe it this week? Did you, did you factor that in to what was happening in your life this week? Did you recognize that 
that some of the things that were happening to you had both a visible dimension and an invisible dimension as well. Because that is the truth. That is reality with a big R. Is that everything that's occurring in your life typically has a seen and an unseen dimension. As we move on through the scripture, we come to the book of Job, perhaps the oldest writing uh, that we have in the scripture because it describes a man who is, is a contemporary with some of the very earliest figures in the Bible, this man Job. And, and it assumes that there is a personality behind evil. There's a Satan, which means adversary in Hebrew. And, and it assumes that. We're going we're gonna to see some of that in a moment. When we come to the book of Exodus, and we see that the people of God are being oppressed by a visible oppressor, a kingdom, uh, the Egyptians, they are in slavery. But when it comes time to deliver them, God sends plagues that one by one by one by one by one undoes the theology, the, the, the theology of the Egyptians, takes down this God, that God, all their idols, their entitled, entire idolatrous system is this 12-12. Just listen. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and listen to this, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see, behind the visible oppression of the people of God, there was an invisible demonic system, the gods of Egypt, that were mobilizing, inspiring, and empowering the Egyptians to oppress the people of God. And so we see that in Exodus. We see it in the Gospels in the book of Acts where Jesus comes and announces that the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God is present in his ministry, in his life. And that any person that receives him, that the kingdom of God becomes part of their existence and part of their life. And the moment he begins preaching, the moment he begins doing ministry, it's as if all the demons of hell come against him because he encounters demons on every occasion. Now, they're not a problem for him, but they're a problem for us. And we need to recognize that we're in a spiritual battle. And we need to understand how to fight that, that battle, how to enter into that fight. Now, I am not in one sermon going to be able to tell you all that the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare. But as I prayed about it this week, what came to mind was, you know, there is one basic principle, one basic thing that we are told to do in the Bible in relationship to the devil, that if you don't understand that this is your responsibility, you are probably going to be roadkill kill in wind this week, spiritually speaking. And so we want to consider that. But first, uh, before I get to that, that one basic principle or action, I want to pose this question. How does this spiritual battle manifest itself? What are some clues or some ways that I can know that I am involved in just not just a visible problem, but that much deeper? I just want to underscore or say uh, three beliefs, convictions, presuppositions that I have when I talk about this. Uh, first of all, I don't believe that anything happens to you and me randomly. Your life is not an accident. 
And the things that happen to you, especially if you're a Christian, the Bible says specifically that God is at work through those events to extract good for those that love him. And, and, and so God is well aware of those events. Now, he is not, and the, the other thing I would stress is that God should not be blamed for everything that happens to you. Because it's not an accident doesn't mean that he is responsible for everything that happens to you. Now, we could get into a big debate on that. In fact, I invite you to come back tonight because we're going we're gonna to debrief this message and talk about it just casually as a group this evening. But, but yes, I know that it raises all kinds of questions when I say something like that, but, but just hear me. God gave you a free will. You made a choice whether to come here today or to stay at home. And, and that choice is yours all the time. And good people have that choice and bad people have that choice. And we live in a world full of people who make really bad choices. And God does not protect you from your bad choices, nor does he necessarily, is he obligated to protect you from the bad choices of other people. And so because of this gift of free will, because we have the choice to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, because God wants us voluntarily to come to him and put our trust in him, he's given you a free will. But at the same time, we live in a world that's broken by sin. Free will itself is damaged. And as you and I walk through this world, people who are, who are giving themselves to choices that have nothing to do with God, they can affect your life, they can influence your life, and they can hurt you. And so that's an assumption that I make. But the third assumption I would make is this, is that God has a way for you through what's occurring in your life. The cry of our heart is not necessarily, God, get me out of this, that that's the only way you can answer my prayer, God, is that you get me out of this situation. The real prayer is, God, deliver me through this situation. And that's more true to what we see in the world in which we live. That God has a way for me through this worst circumstance, this worst difficulty, this problem that I have. Now that being said, let's talk a little bit about some examples of battles that may be partially or entirely spiritual in origin. In other words, there's an unseen dimension to the problem that you're experiencing. So I want to give some examples. These are not, this is not a comprehensive list. These are just examples of the kind of battles you and I experience. First of all, there are external manifestations of this battle. There's a conflict in the world that we cannot see. We know that the Bible speaks about that. But when it breaks through into the world that we do see, when that conflict breaks in, what does it look like? Well, there are some external ways in which it shows up, some physical and visible ways. Here's, here's the main way. A battle with adversity. A battle with problems. And they come with intensity and they come with frequency and you are overwhelmed by adversity. Anybody feel like that this morning? I did about 7 o'clock. And I got a call and, and um, someone had decided to throw a rock through one of our doors here at the church. And um, now I want you to know that we have an outstanding police department in Wynn, Arkansas, and we have an outstanding sheriff's department because they all showed up at once, in mass. And uh, they walked through the building, made sure there were no bad guys in the building. Uh, unfortunately, the mosquitoes, however, had already moved in, and um, they have made them, their presence felt. And in fact, keep your eye out even while I'm preaching, because this is a battle that you want to win. Uh, a battle with adversity. 
I want you to see in this question that human beings have, which is basically why is there evil in the world to begin with? If God is good and all that God does is good, why is there evil in the world? And Job wrestles with that question. But, but in Job chapter 1, verse 12, there's this conversation between the Lord and between Satan. The Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out. Now, I want you to see that God is allowing Satan to do something to Job. Clearly, this is a test of Job's faith. This is a test of Job's loyalty to God. This is a test of Job's integrity. Um, what kind of a man is he? And often the experiences we have do test us in that way, draws out the very best from us or exposes our deepest uh, weaknesses and, and it can have that effect. But what I want you to see is what Satan does, what he's able to do. So Satan went out, verse 14, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. Now God said, Satan, go out. What happens? This marauding band of Sabaeans come in and, and kill some of his servants, steal some of his stuff. Who was behind that? There was a visible manifestation of that, adversity. But there was also an invisible component, an unseen component to what took place. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking. This is a bad day, y'all. This guy's already given enough trouble for months. But while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Now, we know it wasn't the fire of God. That's a euphemism for some kind of fire that fell from the sky. It could have been a lightning bolt. We don't know. But it says the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. Who was behind that fire? It was a visible manifestation, but who was behind it? And made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. The Chaldeans are visible. They're the mean guys, bad guys. They're coming. But who inspired them? Who's behind the attack? Verse 18. You think that's enough for one day, don't you? It gets worse. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. All of his children wiped out. Do you think the devil loves children? I don't. You know, John 8, 44, Jesus said that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And moms and dads and grandparents, you need to pray for your children. We're in a bloody war. Life and death. There are physical manifestations that can take place. A battle with physical illness. Uh, well, I skipped one. Uh, let me give you another example from the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. I plan to get up and just sort of work on the PowerPoint slides this morning. But Satan hindered me. Whoever threw that rock. Physical manifestations. A battle with physical illness. Uh, there's a woman in the New Testament. She's bent over, humped over. She can't stand up for 18 years. She's been that way. And Jesus heals her. And it's said that she has a spirit of infirmity. And for 18 years, she's been over physically hurting. 
for 18 years. And Jesus heals her, and the religious leaders, the brilliant people that they were, uh, said, you can't do that on Saturday. In Luke 13, verse 16, Jesus, in responding to them, says, So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Now, there was a physical ailment. There was a physical disease. Am I saying that all disease is caused by the devil? Absolutely not. If you go through and read the New Testament, it says that Jesus went everywhere, healing their diseases, diseases, casting out demons, healing people with epilepsy. And each one is a distinctive, different case from just mere demon, demonic activity. And so not all illness is caused by a demon. But in this case, there was a demonic driver to it. There are internal manifestations, and this is more aptly what you are experiencing with some frequency in your life. The things that happen inside of you, your emotions, thoughts that take place. I'm going to call it, just in a big sense, a battle with oppression, and, um, and I'm referring to the inner turmoil that, that happens as you encounter different experiences in your life, different problems, um, and they can be incredibly hurtful to your walk with God, if you let it. And, um, and so, an example, Acts 10.38 uh, this is a sermon that Peter is preaching to a man who's hearing the gospel for the first time. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, and look at this, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And that means continuous, continuously they were being oppressed by the devil. It means to violently subdue someone, to dominate them, to take whatever was in their heart, whatever was in their life, and it caused such distress of soul that he was enabled to control them. Oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I want to give you three examples of how this oppression can manifest, and there are many. I, I think one of the more common ones has to do with depression, to be honest. Um, I think there are a lot of spiritual factors in that. And I think sometimes we say, well, you just need to pray more or you just need to uh, get right with God or read your Bible more. When the writer of Hebrews talks about it, he says, consider him who endured such hostility uh, from sinners against himself, lest you grow weary and discouraged in your soul. And in that statement from uh, Hebrews 12, the writer is admitting that you can grow weary and discouraged in your soul. That's not a problem. People do that. We have that, we grow weary and discouraged in our soul. But what does he say is the, the answer? He says, you, you got to consider him. You've got what you have lost, ultimately, in the biggest sense of it, what you have lost is your sense of Christ, your awareness of Jesus, your worship. And the, the most challenging thing you and I face is to take our eyes off of what we're experiencing and to put our eyes back on Jesus. He is our hope. He is the one who sets us free. He is the one who can supply to me the joy that's not in my soul. He doesn't say, now straighten up, start feel better, smile, get happy. He doesn't do that. He says, look to me. Look to me. Run your race. Keep your eyes on me. Let me give you three examples I meant to give you. A battle with unforgiveness. 2 Corinthians 10, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. 
then he said, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Some, some guy had really messed up in 1 Corinthians. By 2 Corinthians, he's repented. And, and Paul's saying, you need to forgive him too and let him back in the, the church fellowship. He said, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, how would Satan take advantage of that? Well, if I'm unforgiving towards someone who has wronged me, what he's saying is that Satan can take advantage of that. He uses unforgiveness to dominate, to control your life. And so you have to watch out for unforgiveness. It's a big deal. Jesus said it was so serious in Matthew 18 that um, he describes the unforgiving servant and the master who, who looks at him and calls him because he won't forgive somebody with a sound and, and he encountered a guy with a little debt and he wouldn't, he wouldn't forgive the debt. And the master heard about it came to him and the first words out of his mouth are, you wicked servant. You see, the, the problem with unforgiveness is not the other person. The problem with unforgiveness is in my own heart. And he says, unless you forgive them from the heart, you're going to be tormented. You're going to be tormented. So anyway, a battle with unforgiveness is an example of how the enemy can get in and take control. A battle with anger. Anger. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when that anger becomes bitterness and it just boils on the inside and boils on the inside, when that, when that occurs, you are creating a space where the enemy can take up residence and just keep throwing thoughts into your mind over and over and over again. Don't create a toehold, literally that word is. Don't create an opportunity, a place where the enemy can come in and mess with your head. So you got to deal with anger. Um, and uh, battle with dishonesty. Not telling the truth. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? It was his idea, but Satan took advantage of this deceptive stance to fill his life. So when you and I experience things that may be hurtful, but if I don't process it with the Lord, if I don't go to the Lord with those feelings and deal with them, it's like opening, closing the door to God and opening the door to the enemy and say, come in, mess with me. Mess with my head. Mess with my life. Take control. So, those are some examples. Those are, those are the kinds of things that as your pastor, I would say, represent spiritual battles that you and I face. There are more than that. But all I'm saying is that when you encounter events, circumstances, emotions that seem to take on a life of their own and you have no control over them, physical imbalances, there really are things that can mess with your head that are just purely physical. And, um, and God can heal that. Uh, go see a doctor. I mean, he can deal with that. But often combined with that, there can be very real psychological problems that we have, emotions that are out of balance. And sometimes we do need to talk to someone who shares truth with us. And in sharing that truth with us, it defeats the lies that are running around in our head. That can be a psychological driver to what we're experiencing. And there are physical, real physical problems, real emotional problems that people deal with. But listen, the enemy will often take advantage of those things. And what you need to realize is that there can be an unseen driver, a demonic driver, that makes those things exponentially worse and can cause you to think it's impossible for this to ever be different. I will never change. I will never have a better life. It will always be this way. And dear one, that's a lie. That's a lie from hell. Jesus came not to leave you the way you were. 
In Galatians 1, 4, it said he came to rescue us from this present evil age. Galatians 4, 1. To rescue us from this present evil age. And so Jesus just didn't die on the cross to forgive your sins. We studied that for eight weeks this summer. He just didn't die on the cross to forgive your sins. He forgave your sins so that he might rescue you and set you free and bring you into a relationship with himself. So, if I can give you one step to take if you believe you're experiencing spiritual warfare, if you just had to start with one thing, start in one place, here it is. Your first step in spiritual warfare to resist the devil. To resist the devil. Recognize what's happening and resist what he is doing. So how do you resist the devil? Well, first of all, let me call attention to the passages where this phrase comes from, to resist the devil. Uh, the first one is the first step. It's found in James chapter 4, and I'm focusing on verses 6 and 7. Now, there's a lot in this text. One thing you can do. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God, and here it is, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, notice James assumes the existence and the harassment of the devil. He doesn't argue for the existence of the devil. He assumes it. And he believes that you as a reader would understand that he's telling you the truth, that there is someone actually to resist. You and I should not be taken by surprise that there is a spiritual reality in which God works, but also there's an enemy who is also at work. And there, I know that raises a lot of questions. Why is it that way? Uh, there are religions that teach that there's light and darkness, that there's good and evil, and that presents these two forces in the universe as if they were equal. I want you to know that they are not equal in the Bible. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. Our God possesses all power. Our God possesses all authority. And you have nothing to fear when it comes to Satan or a demon. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But you also need to know that in of your own strength, you have no power. And so when he says to resist the devil, he's telling you to do something very specifically, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But do not get overburdened with worry about spiritual warfare. We tend to glamorize what the New Testament minimizes. The Bible, the New Testament, does not say as much as we would like it to say about spiritual warfare. And so, why is that? Well, because when he says resist the devil, he's just about told you all you need to know. And uh, I think that'll be more clear here as we go. But he assumes the existence and the harassment of the enemy. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. <clears throat> what he says that you must do. That, that James is saying that resisting the devil is part of a whole um, it's an approach to life that you are to embrace. It's, it's obviously more than just resisting the devil. But what does resist mean in this context? Well, look at what he says. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So, obviously, pride is a problem. Thinking that I can solve my own problems using my own reason, my own ability, my own talents and gifts and ingenuity 
is a problem. Thinking that no matter what happens, I can devise my own solution and get my own self out of my own problems is a problem. Thinking that I know the answers and I can think for myself and I don't need some God telling me what to do is a problem. That is a demonic mindset that goes all the way back to the garden. Eve, did God really say? Eve, God knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be just as smart as him. You're going to be just like God's. That's why he's doing that. Eve, you don't need some God telling you what to do. Do you really have to go and check with God before you make any decision? Do you really have to go to him to figure everything out? Can't you stand on your own two feet? Can't you think for yourself? Because after all, God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie. You and I are supposed to humble ourselves before God. God, I'm not smart enough to fix my own problems. God, I don't have the strength to take care of myself. God, I don't know what the answers are to my needs, and I've got these problems. And I humble myself before you because you are the only one who can take care of me. I can't take care of me. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, he says. Turn to God and give it to God. It's just another way of saying, don't get proud. Don't think you can handle your life on your own. Whatever God wants, that's what you want. Whatever God tells you, that's what you need to do. What he wants is best. And you do not have the capacity in and of yourself to make it happen. Now, Peter says something almost identical to that in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want you to see this because he fills in some of the gaps. He helps us understand it a little more fully. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, God resists the proud. Now, you would think James and Peter sat down and wrote these passages together. But, but I believe that this was such a basic truth in the church that, that the apostles taught it, Jesus taught it, the apostles taught it, and, and everybody understood it. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Now, dear one, that is a better way of handling your problems than saying, oh God, help me with my problems. Stop owning your problems. Do what he says here and says, my problems are no longer my problems. God, they're your problems. Here's my problem number one. Here's my problem number two. Here's my problem number three. These are the things that are keeping me up at night. These are the things I'm worrying about. These are the things I'm stressed over. God, here are my problems. They're now your problems. Trust him. Cast all your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He wants to deal with those issues. He wants to guide you through them, deliver you through them. He has a way. But not as long as you think they're your problems. Verse 6, be sober, be vigilant. Now, now listen, what we just said to the Lord, trust him. And he says almost as if, a warning, be sober, be vigilant, because if you don't do this, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who is he going to devour? The person who hangs on to all of their problems and doesn't trust God. 
He's going to eat you up, render you totally ineffective, totally powerless in what you're facing, seeking whom may devour. And then he says it in verse 9, resist him, resist him. He doesn't want you to cast all your problems on the Lord. He doesn't want you to humble yourself under his mighty hand. He doesn't want you to do anything except think that you are self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-confident. You can do it all. You don't have to depend on God. And Peter says, resist him. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, Bible student this morning, you're thinking, well, pastor, uh, why aren't you talking about the armor of God in Ephesians 6? And um, because I'm going to talk about it tonight, and I'm going to show you how resisting him is the primary message of that passage of Scripture, Ephesians 6. And so we are going to talk about it. But I'm going to stand by this, this first basic principle. It encompasses so much of it. We are to resist him. Now, if you really want to know how to do something that Paul tells you to do or that Peter tells you to do or that John tells you to do in the New Testament, if you really want to know how to do those things, let me give you a, a real shortcut in how to learn. Find out how Jesus did it. Now, this is not what would Jesus do. This is exactly finding out how does Jesus resist the devil. Now, why do I say that? Because in Romans 8, it says that, and conform us to the image of his son. He wants to make you and me like his son. So what we read about in the Gospels is your destiny in terms of your character and how you respond and how you deal with different things. He wants to make you like Jesus. And so if I want to know what it means to resist the devil, he is my example. He is the one I look to. He's the one I pursue if I want someone to model or teach me what that means. So how did Jesus resist the devil? And I'm glad you asked. Let me read something. This is not on the screen, uh, but I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4. And I'm just going to read the first four verses. There are three temptations described in Matthew 4. But I'm just going to read the first four verses. And again, this is not on the screen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. I, uh, I don't talk about it much, but I try to fast. And uh, I can tell you that after 24 hours, I'm hungry. And after 48 hours, I'm usually sick. But he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I love that. Because what was Jesus doing? He was resisting the devil in that moment. And, and what we see here, and there's a, a lot of different ways we could describe it. We could break it down into 25 different observations. But I just want to give you two. When I talk about Jesus resisting the devil, here are two big things that I think you can take home and you can chew on 
that you can use this week. Number one, Jesus resisted the devil. Now, this is huge. A lot of times in our prayer life, we're praying for God to please us. God, it would please me if you would do this. God, it would please me if you would do that. And well, we don't say those words. But a lot of times that's what, how we pray. Instead of, you know, you hear some people say, well, pray the promises of God. And that's true. We should pray the promises of God. I, I believe that. But I'm praying the promise of God because the promise tells me what would please God. And so I should be saying, Father, what would please you? How, how can I pray in such a way that this outcome would please you? Not just what would please me. And, the, and of course, the Lord Jesus, Son of God, uh, he had a will. He had a will and a set of desires that was distinct from the Father's. I know that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. There were two wills. He went in with two, he walked out with one. He embraced the Father's will. But Jesus had a will. He had a set of desires. He was hungry. The Bible puts that in the text. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Put that He was hungry. And so the enemy comes and says, change these stones to bread. Jesus had a desire for bread. But he had a greater desire. Because his ultimate desire was to please his Father. The Father loved him. And he loved the Father. And out of that relationship, his whole life was driven. He knew the Father loved him and trusted that the Father's pleasure was far better than his own pleasure. I mean, if it pleases God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the ultimate thing for yourself as well. So, when it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, when I think about that, I think, well, what does it take for a person to be led by the Spirit? What well, takes, we know that the Bible teaches that the moment a person trusts Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for them on the cross, that the moment we trust him, we say, God, save me, change me, forgive me, wash me clean, and we cry out to him that he sends his Holy Spirit and we are made new. We call that the new birth. But more than that, the Holy Spirit stays with us. And so if I'm going to be led by the Spirit, I've got to cultivate a relationship with God through his Spirit where I can just recognize when the Spirit is prompting me, speaking to me, there needs to be a sensitivity that I cultivate. You know what that's going to require of you? It means you're going to have to be less sensitive to some other things in your life. It means you're going to have to turn down the volume on the other things in your life that you listen to that are louder than the voice of God. God's not going to come in and overwhelm you, you know, overwhelm your thoughts and, and pull you away from whatever it is that's preoccupying your mind and what you watch or listen to or read. He's not going to do that. You're going to have to say, Lord, I'm serious. I, I want to hear your voice. And that means I've got to stop listening to so many of the other voices. I believe it implies a relationship with God. We studied last fall what it means to abide in Christ. He wants us to stay with him. He said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And when he taught that, he was saying in the person of his spirit, Jesus was with you. Every Christian here, Jesus is with you. He's never left you alone. And when you come to him in prayer at any time in your day, morning, noon, night, any moment of your day, and you turn to him and say, Lord, I just love you. Lord, I want to welcome you into this moment. God, I realize my mind's been drifting over here, 
and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the day. Thank you for what you're doing. Or God, I have this problem. I want to give this to you. And it becomes this inner conversation. It's part of this relationship. It's communion with God. And so Jesus had that kind of relationship, and he is our model for that. When, when Peter and when James says, submit yourselves to God, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what's he saying? Come into a relationship where this relationship is the primary driving, directing relationship of your life. Nothing else. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. It says a lot about Jesus' relationship to the Father. If you're going to resist the devil, but you're not going to have a relationship with God, it's not going to work. Your resisting the devil is directly proportional to your personal relationship with God. So that's a starting place. If you're serious about dealing with an issue, dealing with a problem, just turn to the Lord. That's what James was saying. That's what Peter was saying. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. Safest place in the universe for you and me. Go to God. All right, second thing, last thing I would mention. Jesus resisted the devil by trusting his father instead of himself. On one hand, he wanted to please God instead of himself, but here he trusted the father instead of himself. Now that sounds like what we just talked about in Peter and James, doesn't it? Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. Don't hang on to your cares. Trust God with those things. He's smarter than you. He really is. And you can trust him. One of the reasons... We don't, we, don't, we don't trust him um, more is, is because this relationship is broken and, and we have this damaged relationship. But, but Jesus, in facing the devil, it says in verse three, uh, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word or utterance that comes from the mouth of God. And when he was tempted the second time, he responded the same way. It is written. When he was tempted the third time, he responded again. It is written. How did Jesus resist the devil? He took whatever the devil was thrown at him and said, well, well, wait a minute. Let me think. What does God say about this? What does God say about this? And he met every lie, every wrong thought, every oppressive effort to control him. You know, you're hungry, turn stones to bread. If you're the son of God, I mean, you can almost hear the taunting in the voice. If you are the son of God, if, you're really, if you really have this identity, if you're really special to the Father, throw yourself off the temple and see what happens. And Jesus didn't have to respond to that. He didn't have to deal with those things. He just says, well, what does God say about this? How does God want me to respond to this? And, and he didn't say, oh, you know, devil, and start arguing scripture with the devil and all this kind of stuff. He didn't say, I can figure this out on my own. If you see anything in the life of Jesus, you see someone who is totally dependent on the Father every single day and every moment of his life. Jesus himself said, nothing I say, everything I say comes from the Father. Everything I do, everything you see me doing, it's the Father at work. Totally dependent on God. We see obedience as somehow demeaning to our personality. We see obedience as being a slave to a master and, and there are words like that in the scripture. I understand that. But the main concept of obedience, the reason I obey my, my father, the reason I obey someone who knows more than I do is because I need them. And I can depend on them. And so Jesus 
trusted the Father instead of himself about who he was. And you need to trust what God says. And, and when he said, it is written, it is written, it's almost as if he's saying, my daddy says, you can see kids doing that. Two kids arguing in the schoolyard. My daddy says, well, my daddy says. And Jesus is responding, this is what my dad says. This is what my father says. You're questioning whether or not I'm the son of God? It is written, my father says, about where to go and not go, about what to do with your life, about right or wrong, about circumstances. It is God who will tell you the truth about all those things. He will tell you the truth about what's happening to you. He will tell you the truth about who you are. He will tell you the truth about what's right for you, what's wrong for you. He will always tell you the truth. And that's why you and I do need the Scripture. That's why you and I do need, we call it the Word of God. And we don't worship a book, we worship our God, but these are the words our God has spoken and left for us to understand everything I need to know about God on this side of heaven, he's given to us. And the guidance I need, the direction I need, the help I need, he's provided that. But you cannot recall something you have not read. Yes, obviously Jesus quoted the scripture, but if you go and read the other apostles and stuff, they didn't quote things perfectly. Sometimes their quotations are a little different from what in the Old Testament. I'm not making a case for, for you having to be able to quote perfectly every scripture or you're going to be roadkill for the devil. I'm not suggesting that. I am suggesting that as you read God's word and as you meet with him, meet with him using his word as, as a window to your relationship to God, that as you do that, you're going to recall stuff. How many times, how many times in your experience have you read the scripture on one morning and found yourself sharing that with someone later in the day? How many times have you heard a sermon or sat through a Bible study class and you learned something, you heard something, God put something in your mind, put something in your heart, and you found yourself sharing that with someone later that week? The Holy Spirit uses the truth. And if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could not resist the devil without drawing on what his Father said, how can I do less? I'm not smart enough, but he is. I'm not strong enough, but he is. I don't have all power. He does. I don't know everything, but he does. The Bible says that when Jesus resisted the devil, Satan picked up his toys and left. Left him. The Bible doesn't say that you need to destroy the devil, have a big conversation with the devil. It doesn't say that you need to somehow, you know, get into this spiritual boxing match with the devil. James and Peter just say resist him. Resist him. As we'll see tonight when we look in Ephesians 6, what does the Bible say? It says stand. 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 Resist him. 